0: Internet. I'm MTV Politics and News Director Holly Anderson, and this is The Stakes. We're coming to you today from a terribly, awfully familiar position. Over the summer, as you might recall, we found ourselves on something of an editorial hamster wheel on more than one occasion as we struggled to put together a weekly magazine show that couldn't keep up with the sheer volume of shooting deaths in this country. I'm not casting me or my team as any kind of victims here. It was just a sobering few weeks for a young staff. It was a sobering summer. It's a sobering time to be alive and aware in America. In early July, the week we were putting together a show on the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile at the hands of police officers, only to be interrupted by a mass shooting at a police brutality protest in Dallas, I opened the show like this. The murder of Black Americans by law enforcement is systemic and occurs with devastating regularity. To use a terrible metaphor, it's part of the software America runs on. It will be with us until we change the underlying code. It's now the end of September, and in every way that matters, that code remains in place. To keep you behind the scenes here for a minute, we rolled into the office on Monday, prepared to discuss how to handle the deaths of Tyree King and Terrence Crutcher on the show. King was 13 and carrying a BB gun and was shot dead by police in Columbus, Ohio. Crutcher, who was 40, was killed in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The officer who shot him has since been indicted on manslaughter charges. And before we as a group had even come to the conclusion of how we were going to address this, news broke on Tuesday of the death of Keith Lamont Scott, 43, at the hands of police in Charlotte, North Carolina. Quick sidebar here. We're able to track these stories thanks to the fine work being done by the folks behind the Washington Post's Fatal Force Database, which stands, as of this recording, on September 22nd at 707 people killed by law enforcement in America in 2016. And while I'm looking at it, here's a couple more stories from the past three days in Fatal Force. Jeremy Ray Swenson, 30 was shot on September 19th in Logan Canyon, Utah by Cache County deputies who'd received a call about a possibly suicidal person. Michelle Miller, 46, was shot by law enforcement officers on September 19th in Spring, Texas. Her family told police she had a history of mental illness. Gary Don LaFon, 56, was shot on September 19th in Wood County, Texas, after sheriff's deputies were called to his house on reports he was suicidal. Joshua Scott, 22, was shot on September 20th in Port St. Lucie, Florida, after a standoff that began when St. Lucie County deputies tried to serve an order for an involuntary mental health examination. None of these stories is reducible to a single narrative. We're living through a moment through this seemingly interminable moment where we have to batch process these killings, bundle these wildly disparate lives together because they were all ended by gunfire. I don't know anything about any of these people other than they're dead and how they got there. I don't know if they were kind to stray animals or cruel to their siblings or talked with their mouths full or put quarters in strangers parking meters i just know that they were each of them more than the hashtags we know them now by if we even know that much and i know that we have a lot to talk about There are so many conversations we have to have. It takes so many people pulling with everything we have in the same direction to move the needle just an inch just for a minute. It is so hard. But the alternative. The alternative is something that has me thinking a lot about technology and communication, which has never in recorded human history moved backwards and does not appear inclined to do so anytime soon. We're never going to be less aware of all this death than we are right now. We're never going to be less cognizant of every thread of sentient possibility snapped by a bullet. If you're trying to silo yourself away from news stories like the ones we've been confronting this week, you already know it's not easy and it's never going to get easier. And it shouldn't. This is America. This is quite literally what we signed up for and lest the toxic personality Tarantella of the presidential race obscure the levels of governance that most directly affect your lives, indulge me for a minute as I remind you of something else you're going to see on your ballots in a few weeks. City councils, county sheriffs, prosecutors, judges, these people are beholden to the kinds of people who put them in office. These are the kinds of races where you can't even pretend your votes don't matter. Because we're well past the point where you can even pretend to be fine with this. We're going to proceed with our regular show here in just a minute, but timely reminder, MTV has partnered once again with our friends at Rock the Vote to make voter registration kind of embarrassingly easy. Visit electthis.com, look for the big red button that says register now, and get in there. Whatever it is you think ought to be done to keep more of your fellow citizens breathing, whoever you think is best suited to help, you are running out of time to show up and fucking say so. So, coming up. We'll have a pair of interviews on a new generation reinterpreting the American dream, how art and social justice intersect, and a very lovely piece of poetry from Marcus Ellsworth. But first... MTV News political staffer Jamie Fuller speaks with Carlos Watson, the editor-in-chief of Aussie.com, and host of a new show on PBS called The Contenders, 16 for 16. It's about the presidential campaigns in history that can help put even this shit show into context.
1: I wanted to start out by asking you if you've ever heard of the gallery of presidential El Rands.
2: I have not, but it sounds good, and uh, I got to talk to a few people who could easily have a portrait there.
1: Well, I was going to say, it's in a bank in Norton, Kansas, and it's been around since 1965, and it has a portrait of every presidential candidate who is lost. And the tagline of the museum is, Presidential Candidates Who Were Defeated But Not Forgotten. And I feel like your project is kind of a long-form oral history version of that museum for our listeners I was wondering if you could describe the show
2: um, uh, we at Ozzy uh, did a uh, written series that we did online on uh, the greatest presidential campaigns in modern times and we called it the contenders 16 great stories for 16 as in 2016 and we looked at a variety of people from uh, uh, John McCain and Shirley Chisholm's campaign to Barack Obama and George W Bush's campaigns and uh, in the end, we put together a series for PBS based on that, a primetime series uh, that runs every Tuesday night during this election season in September and October at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 7 o'clock Central.
1: And another thing, um, uh, important thing to note about the episodes is you're not just saying, let's look at the 1980 race and then just doing an episode on that. You're taking different candidates and kind of making them electoral archetypes and... Connecting candidates from different times and comparing them. Uh, And how did you decide on these archetypes and decide which ones to pair? Because there are some where you can see them fitting in in many places.
2: As we spent time on it um, and thought about, you know, what were maybe even, frankly, some fresh pairings, some unexpected pairings, some pairings that would stretch people's imagination and broaden their understanding, that was a little bit of our approach and so we knew that a lot of people would more easily pair shirley chisholm and howard dean but we thought um you know the bolder stroke might be chisholm and mccain uh, both of uh, whom were straight talkers and you know neither howard dean nor pat shannon was happy to be paired uh, with one another in the flamethrowers episode but there's no doubt that both rocked uh, the establishments of their parties
1: i was going to ask when you told these candidates that who you were pairing them be- against was what was the general response for people like oh that's interesting or they're like what are you doing
2: <laughs> you know we paired debbie and obama together as a master class and uh I-, I think as two-term presidents both could could see that at some level although some of the obama folks thought that uh he would have more easily been paired with reagan uh as a as a they think of uh President Obama is a more transformative figure, a la uh, uh, President Reagan.
1: And one of the things that comes out when you watch a few episodes is that presidential campaigns are usually a recycled jumble of themes that voters always seem to respond to every few years, and that when candidates fail, another candidate has the right to steal their bit. And I just wanted to play a clip really quick from your second episode with Pat Buchanan, where it makes it clear that even the words end up uh, up getting reused. And this is an ad that plays off of his use of the slogan, America First.
2: Pat Buchanan tells us, America First. But while our auto industry suffers, Pat Buchanan chose to buy a foreign car, a Mercedes-Benz. Pat Buchanan called his American cars, quote, lemons. Pat Buchanan... It's America first in his political speeches, but a foreign-made car in his driveway.
1: And it made me think of this interview that Donald Trump did with the New York Times a few months ago, where he was asked about the origin of the phrase uh, America first, and specifically about its ties to Charles Lindbergh and 1930s-era isolationism. And he responded, to me, America first is a brand-new, modern term. Uh, I never related it to the past. (laughs) <laughs> which seems especially funny right after you watch this Pat Buchanan segment.
2: It, yeah. You know, uh, whether or not the candidates recognize it or, uh, or give it credit, there is, there is no doubt that, um, many of the, uh, uh, debates that we are having today clearly have precedent and clearly have history and you've seen them show up before. In fact, you know, you've often heard people say that, uh, this election reminds some of the, uh, famous, uh, uh Election in 1968, uh, to some extent, when you had uh, a law and order, um, uh, somewhat nativist uh, Richard Nixon uh, uh, running his Southern strategy um, against the then insider establishmentarian Washingtonian uh, Hubert Humphrey. But but others say that you could go even further back, and you could look at Andrew Jackson's famous campaigns of uh, the 1820s against John Quincy Adams to see an outsider running against an establishment a uh, candidate and appeals to what feel like uh, uh, um, a na- more narrow view uh, of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. I think Politico had an article a while back that the headline was Pat Buchanan is just Donald Trump with bad timing and that's another thing that's clear. You have, you have all these candidates <laughs> who maybe if they had run a few years later they would have had much better success. And another thing that stands out is how important these campaigns are for the supporters who glom onto them. And you pair Shirley Chisholm with John McCain and Pat Buchanan with Howard Dean, but I think that Shirley Chisholm and Howard Dean could be paired together, too, in a way of showing how, how much of an impact that young people can have when they get really involved with the campaign and how the different ways that they invent for helping campaigns can have a hum- huge effect on future campaigns.
2: Very much so. And, and both came to this uh, quite authentically. Uh, uh, Chisholm had a real, as a former teacher, uh, had a real commitment to young people, real interest in engagement with young people. And again, she was the first black congresswoman um, uh, getting elected to Congress in 1968, only three years after the Voting Rights Act, and so it was fresh on her mind the role that young people had played um, in, uh, in getting passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and um, and other uh, critical pieces of, of legislation. And, and so uh, she brought that focus and that energy to her campaign, and, and they met her uh, with that. And, and um, interestingly enough, Howard Dean, another person very much affected by the 1960s, he, of course, was a young person in that and was protesting the Vietnam War and other things, uh, uh, while a student um, having flipped, though, interestingly enough, from having started life early in the 60s as a Republican, flipped to to a more progressive Democrat. Um, but still, that was what was in his bones, uh, that notion of of young people being at the core of politics and, and knowing that there was an openness among them um, to an outsider and to a fresh voice. and. You know, look, we, see, we saw it again this past year with uh, Bernie Sanders, of course.
1: As you say, the obvious comparison with Chisholm is she's the first woman to end up at the Democratic Presidential Convention, first black woman to end up at this position, uh, which you clearly see in the future with Clinton and Obama. But... There's this one speech that she gives where it becomes clear that the language she was using, as you said, sounds very familiar to anyone who was paying attention to Bernie Sanders campaign. And here we can just play the clip of her saying Nothing else. I'm, I'm finding, finding all over America,
3: over America that, that people are sick and tired of the Tweedledee and the Tweedledee Dums uh, who constantly uh, flip-flap uh, yeah! from one side to another. Yeah. <laughs> people people are interested in
4: having candidates that are truthful. Candidates that have, if you will, uh, just a tiny
5: bit of morality.
2: Yeah, it was, it, it was quite powerful to hear it. And you know, one of the members of Congress, uh, Charlie Rangel, says in that episode that uh, Shirley Chisholm's slogan of unbought and unbossed remains one of the greatest uh, political slogans, and, and indeed it's not just her slogan, as you're suggesting, but, it, but it's her focus on young people and the way that she talks uh, that becomes a bright beacon for a lot of uh, other candidates in successive years. You pointed to Hillary Clinton and um, and Barack Obama, but you could also point to uh, people like Gary Hart and Jesse Jackson uh, and Bernie Sanders Uh, who also uh, gained something from uh, uh, listening and watching and following Shirley Chisholm's approach.
1: I I talked to a woman who did a documentary on Chisholm for a project a couple months ago, and she was saying that uh, Chisholm almost was like, it was like a science fiction movie almost, her running then. Because she felt so modern. And as we were talking about earlier, timing is incredibly important when you think of all these campaigns that were very important and yet didn't catch on to where they needed to to go even further.
2: Yeah, timing is so uh, critical, uh, as you know, and, and luck and daring uh, as well. Um, you know, could a Barack Obama run for the first time in 2012? instead of 2008 have won or was 2008 including the financial crisis just the right time to allow people to take uh, a chance on a uh, young senator uh, first-term senator from illinois um you know there, there just is so much uh to uh, the timing piece of it and we see it again i mean jeb bush running in many other years probably would have won the nomination or certainly would have gone further but but not this time
1: and it, it was funny how different the interviews sounded based on how far away in the past the campaigns took place. Uh, the ones that were a bit more recent, you could feel that the people who were talking were still very invested in what that campaign was, and were perhaps a bit sore about losing.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the time heals a lot, and um, you know, it, it is grueling to run for president. You know, one of the things on Aussie that we talk about is the toll that campaigns take, not just on the candidates, but literally on their families and staff. And the, and the fact that for many people, their lives are literally interrupted for two years or more at a time um, where they sleep less and differently, where they eat, um, uh, differently, where uh, they exercise differently, where they don't get a chance to spend time with friends or, or, or do other things. So, um, Uh, It it is uh, remarkable the extent to which uh, um, uh, people are broadly impacted by these runs.
1: Did you ask anyone if they were glad that they lost?
2: Uh, You know, I did not. um, But as Howard Dean says so smartly, he said, you know, um, we used to kill each other. Now transitions are decided by, by elections and votes. He said, but the emotion is still the same.
1: Well, thanks so much.
2: Jamie, what a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: That was MTV News' Jamie Fuller with Carlos Watson, the editor-in-chief of Ozzy.com and the host of The Contenders, 16 for 16, which you can find on your TV Tuesday nights and at pbs.org. Here at MTV in our Elect This campaign, we've devoted the past months to asking young voters what issues they care about, with the aim of empowering them to make real change on a local and a national level. As part of Elect This, we're curating a virtual reality protest art show, stay with me here, and talking to young artists about what matters to them the most this election season. Podcast producer Mukta Mohan talked to Adi Rikovich, one of the artists featured.
6: Adi, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You used to run a gallery space in Los Angeles called Sunday, where you featured young emerging artists. I absolutely loved this space. I had DJed a couple of your events, and I was constantly going to your openings. To set the scene for listeners a little bit, the gallery was in an inconspicuous building at the top of a narrow flight of stairs and inside your living room. I always thought it was so cool that as a young artist right out of art school, you took initiative to make a creative space using the resources that you had. Why was it so important for you to start Sunday?
3: Yeah, so thank you. Sunday was a really important project to me and I think a lot of people coming out of art school, I think that there wasn't so much going on in terms of artist run spaces. You know, sometimes when you go to openings, they're all you know, it's like the same white walls and really bright lights. And there's I don't know. I think that galleries can have this like pretentious feel to them sometimes. I think that oftentimes people don't feel people can feel uncomfortable in in galleries. Um, so we wanted to have something more universal. And something that anyone could could understand and anyone could enjoy. And since, yeah, the space was in our living room, I think it definitely had that feeling. And we were also just tired of the stale gallery air, I think. We wanted to have something, something different. You've since closed Sunday, but it continues to be a platform on the Internet
6: where you regularly share your thoughts on art and social justice. What are the next steps? For
3: Sunday or for you personally as an artist? I think that the next step for Sunday is that we're going to be doing more satellite events so I I still am basically using the platform of the gallery to either talk about issues that that I care about or having pop-up events kind of in different places. And I feel at this point that I'm kind of almost using Sunday as like a pseudonym or something because it's kind of interchangeable what I do and then what the space does. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll want to kind of separate the two a little bit. Personally, what I'm doing right now or my next project is going to be working on getting artists paid we're using, starting to use the hashtag, uh, hashtag Get Artists Paid, and we're trying to start holding these institutions and these brands and these companies accountable for, you know, being these spaces that are supposed to nurture and foster the artist. We're kind of changing that paradigm, where instead of you know artists not being able to get really. Realized until they're, like, rich, famous, or dead that people can actually put more initiative into encouraging young artists right now, which means being able to pay them, especially when artists are doing twice the work sometimes because they have to have a job where they make their money. And then if they have time on the side, then they make their art. But I think sometimes even having a job that you might not want to do will you know, possibly make you lose some of your creative drive, even. I wanted to talk to you about the intersection of art and social justice. How do you think the two come together? I think that social change often comes from creative people. I think that the word artist is kind of arbitrary. I think that creative yeah people have always, you know, paved the way just by their imagination and just by saying, like, things can be different. And thinking originally and uniquely... Being an artist is also political in its own act because it's saying that you're not going to work within the traditional system that we have. Like you're kind of going against the grain as just being someone who wants to dedicate your life to thinking and creating, which is I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to even do that. But it's it can be taxing just even emotionally to like um, to be uh, I think the artists are just very in tune in a, in a different way um, like I know myself myself I have like an existential crisis like every week or something like um, but it's it's in a way where I can I, I connect with people at a deeper level yeah I don't think that it has to be that political art is explicitly you know people that make art about political issues, I think it's oftentimes just um, inherent and that the two can easily be on the same spectrum.
6: You're a part of MTV's Elect This campaign that spotlights the issues that millennials care about.
3: What are some of the issues that are important to you? So I think personally, something that is important to me right now is unlearning, like the learning of unlearning, which is, you know, just unlearning all of the things that I was raised with, the stereotypes and the boundaries, I think, also of, you know, what everything means and why things are the way they are and just and not accepting that and being curious and asking questions and I think that all that will lead to more more equality and more understanding and hopefully be able to absolve a lot of social issues as well. I think that this is not so much of an issue, but imagination is something that is really important to me right now. The ability to... To think freely and to imagine how you want your world to be, um, and then really acting on that because I think that we get so caught up in just the act of, of living because it is so difficult for some people that we don't ever, you know, realize how complicit we are in the system that is sometimes like making it hard to live. And I think that as people who have the, um, We even have the privilege of being aware enough of that, like you have to, I mean, I think it also comes down to like education and people being encouraging kids more to be imaginative. It's important to also act locally and see what you can do within your own community and just forming, forming your own communities also, even if it's online. Um, And just, having conversations. I think that just talking will lead to acting and then that will lead to change. I mean, I think it's all, it's all a process, but every single part of the process is important.
6: Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Adi. Cool. Thank you so much, Mukta.
0: That was MTV podcast producer Mukta Mohan in Los Angeles talking to Adi Reykjavik of Sunday Gallery. For the first time in history, American parents don't think their kids are going to be better off than they were. Economic uncertainty, climate change, the rising popularity of slow Norwegian television, and this American election cycle have robbed us all of our capacity to feel hope. Except maybe for Courtney Martin. She's the author of a new book called The New Better Off, Reinventing the American Dream. Courtney spoke to MTV Founders Deputy Editor Julie Zeilinger about what that reinvention looks like. Courtney, thank you so much for
4: taking the time to join us to talk about your new book, The New Better Off, uh, which is publishing this week. It's very exciting.
7: Uh, Thanks so much for having me.
4: Can you sort of distill what your findings for this concept of The New Better Off are?
7: Yeah, so I wrestled with a really wide range of things because as you can imagine once you start asking, you know, what is the the 21st century good life? You can look in all kinds of different directions. So, you know, one of the things I looked at was work and money. You know, work is changing so much and by 2020, it's estimated half of the American workforce will be freelance. People move jobs every 4.7 years on average. So, the work world as our parents lived it or or certainly as our grandparents lived it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so, you know, I argue instead of asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? We have to ask kids, how do you want to be when you grow up? Because the safest thing you can do in that sort of insecure work environment is to really understand yourself and really know how to apply your gifts and interests in a wide range of settings. Um, I happen to be a, a lived example of this. I've never had employer-provided health insurance in my entire life. And, you know, there's been a lot of financial insecurity at different moments, but there's been this real gift of flexibility, and I've always created these communities to make sure I didn't become isolated, which is, of course, the real danger of of this new economic time we're living in. So I look at um, the way in which fathers are really getting reengaged and starting to really stake their claim to wanting to be present parents, which is such good news for the rest of us working moms like myself, because it means that they're really owning this issue of structural change around family leave and those kinds of questions for the first time and i think that conversation is finally like really shifting in an exciting way um, i look at uh, attention because that's one of the things that you know again our parents and grandparents may not have wrestled with quite as much but all of us that are living on our cell phones and just feeling pretty overwhelmed by the amount of information and and also frankly by our own lack of willpower around when we're connected and when we're not that part of the new quality of life question is really about what's your relationship with technology and how are you able to um, be intentional about your own attention and your own sense of presence with the people you love. So I look at kind of all of those issues and it's a range of topics, but it all sort of kept coming back to this idea of community and of intentionality and of, you know, joy and meaning as opposed to a bunch of other measures, which, you know, your aunt at Thanksgiving might be looking at like how much money are you making, or have you been able to afford a home yet? Um, but that those things ultimately don't provide sustainable sense of happiness
4: mm-hmm. and And you do make the valid point throughout the book, though, that many aspects of this new better off require some semblance of economic privilege. And I think, the stat was that the 14.8% of Americans that live in poverty may be too concerned with surviving to question some of the, the aspects of this new better off. But how do you think this concept can apply to and be implemented by all Americans?
7: Well, this is one of the ironies of this topic is, is as you said, I try to make very clear that people living in poverty need money. And it's, it's romantic to act as if money doesn't function to affect happiness and actually there's lots of sociological research that up to $75,000 the more money you make the the happier you can be because you you know aren't so stressed all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's like a very you know important reality. But the other side is that we talk about the poor in this country um in a really victimy way quite often and especially around this election season we're seeing this where you know poor people are made to be sort of these faceless victims but by both liberals and conservatives, honestly. And that has always really bothered me because one of the things I had concretized for me through this reporting but have always kind of suspected is that poor people are actually better at working together and being being interdependent because they have to out of necessity, whereas having enough money to sort of insulate yourself and, and have this delusion that you can get all your needs met in your own little home with your own nuclear family, um, you know, it actually protects that delusion as opposed to when you have less money, you kind of have to let that go and say, how are we going to make things work this week? Like, I don't have the child care I need. Let me talk to a neighbor, an auntie, you know, an extended family person. So it's it's interesting to think about that on the one hand, what I'm talking about is most easily realized by people with some amount of money. But on the other hand, I think people without money are actually better at a lot of these things that I'm trying to recommend those of us with a little bit more cushion do.
4: How do you think our culture would be affected by moving towards such a radically different understanding of success?
7: Oh, man, what a good question. It would be so awesome. I've thought a lot about how we would individually shift. Um, if we were able to adopt an idea about success, that was less money-oriented and more meaning-oriented. Um, but thinking about um, sort of a critical mass of people doing that is, is really exciting. I mean, I think one, one answer that's kind of the micro to the macro is I actually live in a co-housing community, which is another thing I read about and is in the TED Talk that just published. Um, and so I've experienced that, which is like this small community. There's about 25 of us who all have agreed that we believe that interdependence matters, that, you know, having a sort of sacred amount of privacy, um, is important, but that we also need to show up for each other and that all of our lives will be enriched by sharing meals, um, twice a week by sharing, you know, a tool shed, a bike shed, all of these simple things, but things that ultimately represent our shared commitment to one another. And, so even experiencing that on the level of 25 people agreeing around that belief system has been life-changing for me. Um, you know, I'd, I had never lived in a community like this before I moved in three years ago, and I was a little bit worried. I was like, is this going to turn out to be a cult? Um, but ultimately, it's been just a totally radical um, and transformative experience. So I can only imagine if If on a larger scale we were able to create networks and communities and neighborhoods and cities where people were actually adopting a a meaning measurement of success as opposed to a money measurement, I mean, it would just free us up to do all kinds of important um, work for each other in the world to, you know, create more health and, and true wealth, which I believe is rooted in relationships, not money.
4: Yeah, I totally agree and and really hope that other people, especially my generation, can read this book. I took a lot away from it and have already lent the book to many of my friends. Um, How awesome. Hopefully it will spread even further. So thank you so much for talking to
0: us today. Awesome. Thank you. That was our own Julie Zeilinger in New York and the author of The New Better Off, Reinventing the American Dream, Courtney Martin. Find her book now, online, and in real bookstores. Finally, let's end our time together down in Tennessee with a piece by MTV News resident poet-slash-journalist Marcus Ellsworth. Take it away, buddy.
5: A basket, a bushel, and a peck. Doesn't matter what you put it in, it's all still a wreck. When folks will freely rebuke Clinton all day but won't call out David Duke. They say kick out the Mexicans because they don't know any other nationalities and blame immigrants for economic disparities. They want to see every Muslim tracked and gnash their teeth at anything black. Trans folks get misgendered and rights get dismembered, pretending we don't know what is meant by make America great again, while they claim they want a smaller government. In their lives. But not all lives. Because their ideology thrives on them being the only Americans. At best, your man's a talented idiot savant. At worst, he's a cruel tyrant who wants to spread self-serving lies while everyone tries to pretend that he is qualified for anything other than reality TV. But on racism, you don't hold the monopoly. You're not the only endorsers of classism and misogyny. Long ago, America had a cultural lobotomy that severed our capacity for empathy and tried to take the glory out of me. And my kin, my ancestors, and my friends, each of us refusing to choke down the promises America broke when it said, all men are created equal, as it omitted women and all the people whose children are still trying to make right the wrongs that drive us to fight. Allow me this personal confession. I'm tired of your political correction, that no one should call someone a racist solely on the basis of openly expressed prejudice against several races. But I admit, the problem is not Republicans. It's that prejudice lives in so many Americans, and most can't even see it. They refuse to believe it. They want to think of themselves as good, thinking racists always wear swastikas and hoods. When sometimes they tucked you in as a child and taught you how to see the world, which is much harder to face, that you've been given a lens of race which warps your reality until you think the oppressed are on some sort of quest to bring an end to you, rather than the systems that are holding you back too, leaving you to decide what is actually true. So choose. Is hate for your fellow Americans and immigrants regardless of if they're citizens going to shape our future? Will we write another page of an oppressive age or will we do better? And even if we get her, we've still got work to do. To make the American dream come true. For everyone.
0: From our Los Angeles studio, I'm your host, Holly Anderson. We'll be back at you very shortly this time, on Monday night, following the first presidential debate, in another installment of Stakes After Dark, or SAD. Tune in then, and thank you, all of you, for being with us today. Stay as safe as you can out there, and take care of each other.
6: This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Kasha Mihailovich, and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. You can find this and other MTV podcasts wherever you find your favorite shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at MTV Podcasts.